Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 27th, 2021, and the news this morning seems to be pretty good for environmentalists, for people particularly opposed to the oil industry. All the newspapers have headlines about uh, climate activists um, hailing uh, breakthrough victories over Exxon and Shell. Here's a headline from the Financial Times from yesterday. Um, the, the Guardian says that yesterday was a cataclysmic day for oil companies, uh, this decision. Um, even the Wall Street Journal, one of the voice pieces, I think, of the oil industry, acknowledges that oil giants were dealt major defeats on climate change. Um, uh, Verge says that uh, big oil and gas had a very bad day. And the FT really gets into it. Uh, again, the FT hardly a leftist anti-big oil newspaper, um, reports that big oil has suffered a climate backlash after a court ordered Royal Dutch Shell to aggressively slash carbon emissions and ExxonMobil shareholders backed an activist investor said that the super major uh, faced existential risk because of its focus on fossil fuels. Existential risk, of course, is something that environmentalists have been talking about a while. All this brought to mind a speech about 15 years ago by G.W. Bush, the, um, the 43rd president of the United States. Many of you remember a news conference he gave in 2006 to justify one of his odd Middle Eastern oil wars, Bush, of course, being an oil man. Uh, here was a, a news conference where Bush told us to go shopping. And this seems to be the foundation of his oil wars. And uh, of course, we go shopping by getting into our cars and using gas. Um, it's a rather long detour, excusing the pun here in terms of detours for my guest today, the author, really interesting new book, The Day the World Stops Shopping. Uh, J.B. McKinnon um, uh, is a Canadian uh, journalist, uh, environmental activist. Subtitle of the book is How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. Uh, J.B., apologies for such a long, winding intro, but um, should we be celebrating? Is consumerism, is, are, are these decisions about ExxonMobil and Shell are these the beginnings of the the death of the fossil fuel industry and the end of shopping as we know it? I think it's very good news uh, for climate activists, and these are big wins, but I'm not sure that, that these kinds of changes are getting to the nub of the issue, which is consumption, the fact that we have a consumer-driven economy. Uh, and even if we do succeed, I think, in in drawing down climate emissions, uh, we're left then with how are we going to power all of this consumption that we're doing and more and more of it into the future, because that's the model around which our economy is built. Uh, how are we going to do that? What are the new environmental consequences that are going to emerge as we try to, to run the whole thing on uh, 
renewable sources of power or nuclear power or other alternatives to fossil fuels. JB, make the pitch. Um, we can get into some detail later in this conversation, but explain to someone who enjoys shopping why, why, why they should stop shopping. A lot of people watching this show uh, will say, well, I enjoy shopping. What's wrong with it? I, I'm, I'm responsible. I'm careful. I may walk to the shops. I'll, I'll bike to the shops uh, or I'll order online. What's wrong with shopping? Well, the first thing I want to say is that I'm using shopping in this book as shorthand for consumerism as a whole. But I mean, shopping is sincerely a part of that. And of course, the problem with all of this consumption is that it is the greatest driver of our environmental crises today. It, According to the uh, a UN panel on resource use, uh, somewhere around the turn of the millennium, consumption surpassed population growth as the, the major driver of environmental problems ranging from deforestation to climate change to species extinction. So uh, it is not only a big problem, it appears to be the problem that we need to confront right now. And I mean, that is ultimately the problem with shopping. I think the other half of the problem is that our, our economies run on it. You know, as George W. Bush said in 2006, and as we're hearing again from politicians and business leaders today, uh, if we stop shopping, the economy as we have designed it does indeed take heavy blows and and is even threatened with collapse so this is the this is the dilemma that that we're dealing with and the dilemma that hangs over every instance where we're we're out in the shops uh, buying things as you say jb um the economy runs on it and you, you begin the quote with a number of really provocative quotes one by the great African-American um, polemicist, James Baldwin. Uh, Baldwin wrote, uh, I think it was in the 60s, you can't make love to a Cadillac, though everyone appears to be trying to. I think the great emotional or psychological or effective lack of love and touching is the key to the American or even the Western uh, disease uh, Baldwin, of course, was not just a critic of American capitalism, but American racism. Your book suggests that there is a connection between our addiction to consumption and uh, Western society's history of racism. How are they entangled? Oh, I mean, they're, they're, they're entangled from the, from the roots to the tips of the tree, really. I mean, it was colonial expansion that allowed, uh, that really allowed the engine of modern consumerism to, to get started. Uh, it, and it, is, it continues as resource exploitation around the world, uh, as those resources are drawn towards the richest parts of the globe and the richest uh, communities within each nation around the planet. Uh, who are doing most of the consuming. I mean, this is one of the clearest findings from the research I did for this book is that that when we're talking about consumerism, you know, we're very clearly talking primarily about the the, the world's super consumers in in the West, but also within you mean white men, w wealthy white men, and I guess women. Well, I mean, they certainly are well represented in that group, but around the world, 
due to the glaring inequalities you see in almost every country now, you you see uh, hyper consumers of of every type. Uh, but I mean, it is still fundamentally a problem driven by yeah by the by the West, by North America, by Europe, um, but increasingly around the world. Uh, JB, let's go back to that wonderful quote by Baldwin. He says, you can't make love to a Cadillac. Um, Baldwin says that, but I went to the Cadillac website and um, my sense is that they are suggesting you can indeed. There's a deeply sexual element about much um, of the car advertising on, on the web, uh, on television, uh, in, in all media. Um Baldwin, as I said, uh, said you can't make love to a Cadillac. Um, is the problem that we're suffering from an effective lack of love in Baldwin's language that we have to make cars look like sexual objects? Yeah, I really think there is something to that. I mean, I think what what we're seeing is that the challenges or maybe the complexities of creating a society where we are deeply interconnected with one another and with our communities um, has been has been replaced in a sense by by a fairly easy materialism which we hope uh, which has gotten very very good i think the consumer culture has gotten very very good at delivering us these moments of ecstasy, uh, these, these thrills of novelty. Um, it's gotten very good at delivering those in such a steady stream that we hardly notice anymore how deeply unsatisfying they ultimately are compared to the kinds of connections that, that Baldwin is talking about. Um, and we've, we saw, I think a lot of people felt this in the pandemic that suddenly, early in the pandemic in particular, when we were suddenly cut off from, from consumer culture, people suddenly realized that much more important to them was immediately establishing in whatever way they could the, the connections that they do have to other people. Um, I know, JB, you get into this in your book, but I have to admit, while I want to believe you, I'm not convinced with it. I, I think that COVID, the impact of COVID has been radically exaggerated. And as more and more people get vaccinated, most people are going back to their old way of life. I don't see COVID as having um, a structural impact on our on our behavior, on our being, on our sense of self. You really think it's changing everything, or it has changed everything? No, I'm actually I'm actually with you on that. I'm a skeptic about it. I think that there was a brief window early in early in the pandemic during the the sort of first wave of global uh, lockdowns when there was there was this kind of glimpse through the slats in the fence at a different way that we might uh, that we might live but very quickly i mean consumer culture is very adaptive and and it's also what we know so very quickly i think people went to work establishing what uh, normality they could from the situation they were in and so we ended up i think i think the situation we're in now is really the worst of both worlds where we the the pandemic has driven us away from human connections that we want and need uh, but has also delivered us kind of a, a half-formed variety of consumerism and we're lost somewhere in between the two 
Well, we seem to be addicted, uh, JB, you and I, to uh, driving metaphors. You said it's driven us away. We talked about the sexiness of the Cadillac. Some people will be watching and said, well, I'm not going to buy a Cadillac, but I might buy a Tesla. It's equally sexy, and it saves the environment. There's a headline today from CNBC, um, which says electric vehicles need to be owned longer, driven further to offset embedded carbon by one analyst. Are there technological fixes to this? Can't, if, if the Tesla 3, say, for example, came down in price and we all drove uh, electric vehicles, can't we go shopping and save the environment simultaneously? I feel like that's the path we've been going down for the last two decades. And I think at this point, we have to confront the fact that it isn't working very well. And when we look at one, one example that I've looked at pretty closely is the LED light, uh, replacing the incandescent light. And of course, you will remember as I do that when LED lights were, were introduced, they were introduced as durable. They had incredible burn times. You could keep a single bulb for 40 years um, and they saved enormous amounts of energy. Uh, there was no question that that was the case. But where have we ended up? We've ended up now in a situation where LED bulbs are in, have increasingly short lives, uh, lifespans. They're being they're falling into the same pattern of planned obsolescence as as so many other things. And because they cost little, and because there's less cost associated with running them, uh, we found that people simply buy more lights and. Uh, I spent some time in Asia in 2019 and was particularly struck by this there where you could see entire buildings and, and river boats draped with LED lights. And if we have not yet reached the place where LED lights will be burning more energy than we were with incandescent bulbs, then I think we ultimately will, almost certainly. And we've added a new problem, which is which is light pollution, which is greatly expanded by the fact that we're using more and more lights. So, you know, I'm certainly not a, every example that I look at, I, I feel the same. In fact, the headline that you just showed, what's captured there is the anxiety that people are not going to uh, own their electric vehicles longer and drive them farther than in fact, they're going to own them for a couple of years and the model style is going to change and they're going to want a new one. And they will be picking up all that embedded carbon from the creation of their new vehicle. All of these things are caught up in the same consumer mentality and in the same forces that drive consumerism uh, that we've seen, we've seen with non-green products. JB, uh... G.W. Bush, of course, famously talked about regime change in the Middle East, which justified his oil wars. Are you suggesting that rather than regime change overseas, uh, toppling governments in Iraq or Kuwait or wherever, we need to focus on regimes, regi regime change for the self? You quote Gandhi at the beginning of this book. Um, uh, Gandhi's famous words, earth provides enough to satisfy each man's need, but not every man's greed. Do we need a regime change in the self to overcome our personal greed? I think we need 
two things. We need we need two kinds of regime change in a sense. We need we do need a regime change of the self, but it will be and has been proven to be very difficult to do within the context of consumer capitalism as it stands today. So we we know from history that people have tried again and again to arouse in us the impulse, Gandhi included, to arouse in us the impulse to uh, to shop less, to be less materialistic, to consume fewer resources. And we have flare-ups of, of uh, openness to that idea. And then we ultimately wind up rushing back to the shops, as we're expected to do in the aftermath of a pandemic. It's simply very, very difficult for people to maintain dedication to this kind of change in a society around, in a society for which our social and economic operating system is more consumption and perpetual growth of a consumer economy. So what I'm, you know, what I found through the stories that I examined for this book is that we maybe need to be thinking more about regime change within the systems that help drive that consumption, uh, that make it easy for us to consume too much and make it difficult for us to, to consume more lightly. Uh, the regime change you're talking about may require us, or it seems to, you seem to suggest in the book, it requires us to think anthropologically, to go back perhaps before capitalism. Uh, your book uh, begins with the, and, I, and I, I hope I pronounce these people right, uh, please don't take it personally if, if any of them are watching, uh, if I don't, the you Hoansi people of, of Namibia, um, um, They've been written about in, in some detail by a guy called James Sussman, who was on the show actually talking about work, his new book, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. Sussman seems to suggest, like you, that the lessons from these peoples, these pre-capitalist, pre-industrial people of Southern Africa can actually uh, enlighten and emancipate us from this materialist slavery. Um, talk briefly, JB, about the role of work here. And when it comes to personal regime change, how we need to rethink work if we're to rethink consumption. Yeah, work is right at the heart of it. I think for as a really straightforward example of that, one of the ways that we can draw down consumption within our society without you know without having to make a, a run back to the stone age is is to buy fewer and better made things we've seen planned obsolescence for decades now uh, most people i think it's fair to say are frustrated with this pattern of of watching goods become lower and lower quality each year uh, having to throw away and replace things more and more often. So we, we it's, the, uh, it's the iPhone 12 syndrome, right? Every year there's an upgrade every year. We're encouraged to throw away our old phones, our own devices and upgrade. It's the upgrade problem. That's exactly right. And, and so there is, there is a fairly obvious solution to that. And that is to, to create a system and, and put in, um, encouragements in that system that that drive us towards buying fewer, better-made products. But right away, you run into the question of, well, how many people can that employ? If we're producing fewer goods, can it employ as many people? 
as uh, as producing many many goods and i think there is more optimism there than people may think because you can not only make goods uh, at a higher degree of quality which inquires or which requires more labor and more expert labor you can also have the growth of new sectors like repair and maintenance uh, the sharing of goods things like that i however do think we ultimately end up making less stuff under this kind of model and that means that we have to start to look at uh, larger changes like six hour work weeks uh, job sharing four or sort of six hour uh, work days four day work weeks uh, job sharing these sorts of these sorts of changes within the system to make sure that people uh, have the opportunity to work in the cash economy and uh, but even perhaps not to. I mean, I think it casts a new light on ideas like universal basic income. Do we want to provide more people with the opportunity to live a, a simple but dignified life and step away from um, earning money in the cash economy and, and lowering the prestige that we place upon the idea that you know, we must all be working at all times and uh, and uh, putting in the 60-hour, the 80-hour work week. J uh, JB, as I said, you begin and end uh, with the Yuhuansi people of the Kalahari. Why? What do they teach us? What should they teach us? What can they teach us? I think they teach us the really, you know, the deeper lessons, which are that it's ultimately entirely possible to have a deeply satisfying life with next to no material goods, uh, that it is that it can be uh, a pleasure in life to work little and and uh, have few needs and i think so are you saying as and i i think susman is in this camp are you saying that these these uh people pre-industrial uh people of the kalahari that they're happier than we are that we have become miserable through our addictions through our uh, th through our obsession with with Cadillacs and acquiring more and more stuff, I think I, I think it's really difficult to to talk about the the question of happiness. But I do think that we can see pretty plainly if we spend time with someone like the like the Jukwanzi that uh, that they are they have very deep connected human relationships. Uh, they are rich in things that we are poor in. I think that's what I would, you know, I think I could say with the most certainty. When Does that I, make you, I mean, a lot of people will be hearing this and think, oh, this guy's just another sort of post-industrial Marxist. But I think your philosophy perhaps might be closer to Rousseau, this idea that we were once happy and all this modernity or this technology or this consumption has actually taken away our happiness. Would, would you trace your philosophy back to Rousseau? I think that would be fair. I think uh, what I think that a lot of what technology has done is is powered a disconnection between ourselves and things that are more deeply satisfying. Things that are more deeply satisfying, like our human, the, the strength of our human relationships, or uh, the time and connection we have to the natural world. Those things draw us away from consumption. They don't contribute to the consumer capitalist model. So powerful forces have have 
pulled us away from those more deeply satisfying pursuits and towards um, towards ones that are a, uh, a poor copy, I think. No book would be complete these days without a quote from the great 20th century German-American political philosopher Hannah Arendt. And this book comes with one at the beginning. Uh, Arendt writes, and you're quoting her at the beginning of the book, the point is that a consumer society cannot possibly know how to take care of a world and the things which belong exclusively to the space of worldly appearances because its central attitude towards all objects, the attitude of consumption, spells ruin to everything it touches. Um, you don't quote the beginning, though, of this paragraph where Arendt says the relatively new trouble with mass society is perhaps even more serious, not because of the masses themselves, but because this society is essentially a consumer society where leisure time is used no longer for self-perfection or acquisition of more social status, but for more and more consumption and more and more entertainment. Um, you know, we all love Arendt, of course, but is there an element of elitism here that Arendt was writing for a highly educated audience? You're clearly a highly educated journalist. Most people can't really cope with this critique of mass society, which, of course, comes out of the Frankfurt School critique of capitalism through Arendt. Uh I don't think that the, that it is an, a question of elitism, and I think that's made clear by the fact that a lot of you know a lot of the stories that I tell in this book are you know, are coming from people who would be difficult to describe as elite, um, like the the people in Namibia, um, like. People but we can't we can't become the people of a Nib Namibia, even even if we want to. We can't go and live in the the Kalahari Desert. So really, it's. Your example of that is 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 really a metaphor. It's not a, a practical solution, is it? No, but the if we look at say another of the journeys I took to Ecuador, where you know I tried to find the people. You know, Ecuador is a nation where the average level of consumption is such that if we all lived like the average Ecuadorian consumer, then uh, then we'd be living at a sustainable level in terms of resource use. I went down to Ecuador. I tried to did my best to find average. Uh, Ecuadorian consumers. I mean, this is not an unrecognizable life uh, that they lead. They lead lives that resemble very much uh, lives that were the kinds of lives that that wealthier people in the West were living only a matter of a few decades ago. Uh, the pleasures that they take from that life or that they find in it are not elitist pleasures. They are, you know, if anything, the opposite. It's uh, very, very simple pursuits of uh, enjoyment of, of time with others, uh, deep family roots, uh, particularly among students and young people. I mean, deep conversation, uh, the debate of political ideas, you know, the sorts of things. Uh, that are so are you suggesting that Ecuadorians have more meaningful relations than we do because of their lack of stuff, of shopping? I, I think that many of them do, yes. I mean, I think that many of them have more meaningful relations, have more meaningful lives than many of us do. I, you know, I think I would, I would say that. Uh, not in every case, obviously, there are exceptions on, on, on both sides. But the, the fact that it's a question of time, you know, how much time are we putting into earning and spending and how deep and meaningful uh, are those 
are those two foundational pastimes within our culture. Uh, I think for many of us, these are not deeply meaningful activities compared to uh, spending our time in in ways that, you know, as psychologists in the book say, are are simply proven to be more deeply satisfying, more intrinsically rich. JB, uh, last week we had Tim Jackson uh, on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He has a new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. He's also the author of the best-selling Prosperity Without Growth, Foundations for the Economy of Tomorrow. Your book tends to be more of a narrative of your, your travels around the world. But you... Uh, are you in um, uh, are you in agreement with Jackson that we really need to give up the very idea of growth and get beyond the capitalist system itself? I am. I think I, the where I think I, as far as I went with it, I would say I reached not the point where I would declare myself a, a degrowther, but maybe more of an a growther, um, and not that I'm. Not that I doubt the degrowth side, but that I'm, you know, I haven't delved into it deeply enough to say that 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 is my committed position. But I do think it's pretty plain that we should put a lot less emphasis on growth, and that we should dispense with the myth that it's impossible to live without it. And uh, if we do that, then that does suggest uh, a, a pretty profound transformation of capitalism, at least as we know it today. You also begin the book uh, with a quote from Seneca, the Roman Stoic. It is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. And it reminded me of an interesting piece uh, by Wendy Sherman in the Times uh, last week, um, a, a kind of critique of, of Stoicism for life hacks. Um, uh, she writes, in some ways, stoicism is well suited to a program of self-improvement. It has always been a, a sort of athletic training for the soul. Are you a stoic? Can we learn from the ancients as well, from, 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 from uh, philosophers like Seneca, as well as from the peoples of the Kalahari Desert? Or is, has stoicism itself become a kind of uh, capitalist life hack for wealthy young men? I think both those things are true. I think it has become that capitalist life hack. And I think that nonetheless, there are other things that we can learn from it. Uh, Georges Callas, who is a noted degrowth author, uh, he has looked pretty closely at what the what uh, antiquity has to say to us in, in modernity about, about how to live uh, a life that is less driven by possessions and and income and status. And I mean, I think one of the, the interesting points he makes is around the role of limits and how important limits can be to everything from creativity to uh, developing a, a sense of moderation in life that is, that is satisfying and feels like, um, feels like progress, feels like maturity, feels like you're reaching a deeper place rather than the reaction that most of us have to the idea of limits, which is that we're getting some kind of slap on the wrists uh, each time we reach for the candy. Uh, I think that the ancients have a lot to, to say to us about questions like that. 
JB, we live in a time, of course, of increasing discord between left and right, between liberals and conservatives, particularly in the United States, but you're in Canada, and I know the same is true there. Could this be one area in which conservatives and liberals or, or people on the left and the right may discover an ability to talk to one another? Um the end of the book, you uh, sorry, the beginning of the book, the, the first quote indeed is from the Bible, Luke 12, 15, uh, about watching out and guarding ourselves from every form of greed. Um, could your philosophy of tempering shopping, of self-control, of controlling ourselves from greed, of falling out of love with Cadillacs and, 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 and oil, uh, could it be something that unites both liberals and conservatives, both atheists and Christians? I would say that it shows that potential. In fact, I would say that I see that already. I mean, in the interactions I've had with, with uh, initial readers of this book and, and in my research for the book, I, I found it was highly unpredictable who was going to be, who was going to be interested in this idea of reducing consumption, because yeah, there are people uh, on the Christian right, for example, who, who, who do think, well, perhaps we need to be pursuing, uh, perhaps we have become too distracted by the material and made less, too little space in our lives for the spiritual. Uh, so there, there is that potential. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the narrative building machines of the left and right have become so uh, masterful that it's it's there is certainly the risk that particularly on the right that uh, any discussion of of uh, lowering consumption or or uh, rebuilding uh, a less materialistic society will be you know promptly placed into one camp or another. I think that's just the troubling reality of of the narrative building machines that that are out there in the world today but potentially yes and 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 i i mean i think this is true of many things that that if we get beyond the visible partisanship and we talk to the individuals uh who are you know who represent the voter base for the left and for the right people are far more interesting and complex than we give them credit for in in you know the headlines of major news media well, that's what you did in your new book, The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. It's a really good follow-up to your previous books, The Once and Future World about nature, and your other book, uh, well, you've actually had a several others, but another one that I know is The 100-Mile Diet, a, a year of local eating that fits, I think, quite well with your philosophy in this book. Um, JB... Are you uh, are you in Canada at the moment? Where are you? I am. I'm in Vancouver. A lovely town uh, in this post-COVID moment where we're still stuck inside. People, as I said, need to pick up your new book. Uh, I don't know whether we should be buying it or stealing it or borrowing it, but certainly reading it. Are there other books that people might read in these times where we're still a bit stuck at home that will enlighten them about... Um, the problems and troubles with our world, JB? Anything else? Any other books, not by yourself, that, that you might recommend? Well, I, I think the books that you mentioned by James Seussman, um, Tim Jackson, uh, 
I mean, Tim Jackson's book is uh, brand new and and very interesting. And in my book, I mean, there, there's a there's sets of reading lists at the back if people are more interested in pursuing uh, a deep read into degrowth and a growth type positions, for example, or really delve into the uh, the psychology of consumerism and and where our satisfactions may lay. I look pretty closely at the work of Tim Kasser, the psychologist. Uh, he's got a number of works out. Those would be some great places to start. Well, J.B. McKinnon, deep guy, deep book, but very readable. The day the world stops shopping. It's a, it's a metaphor. He's not saying we can't shop, but we need to think about at least controlling our shopping managing our own consumer addictions. A real honor to have you on the show, uh, JB. Congratulations on the book. And uh, you'll have to come back on again, perhaps with Tim Jackson and, and, and James Sussman to talk more broadly about work, capitalism, and meaning in the early part of the 21st century. Keep well. Thank you so much. Thank you. That all sounds wonderful. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me.